Can I, uh, I'm not going to pray about it right now, but I'd love the church that we would enter maybe in, into this week, the next couple of weeks, that some specific things that I'd love you to pray about. And uh, I know we've already, you've already been given some things to, to pray about this morning. Especially over the last couple of weeks, being, being part of this community, being part of Rich Hill, living in this place, uh, you begin to see, like, it doesn't take too long for you to see what's going on, to begin to hear what's going on under the surface. Um, and actually, one of the best places for that is being part of the Rich Hill, uh, the Rich Hill Facebook page. Unfortunately, probably that's where most of the information comes from, rather than often, often rather than just in engagement. Um, but just over this summer, it feels like this summer more than most. Like I, we've been back, me and Judith have been back living here for the last five years, and it seems like this summer more than most, just a real sense of antisocial behaviour among young boys and girls, and and uh, and to the point where you can we can be you can be the grumpy old neighbour that says there's a disgrace. What are they playing at? and all that sort of judgmental stuff that we can so easily default to. But no, the truth is, the truth is that, that I've almost sensed it over the last week, and that, that like, you've poured it down one direction, you've armed the other direction, and there's just this, there's stuff to do in Portadown, there's stuff to do in Armagh, and like Rich Hill's sort of tucked in on the left. And so these kids have, the reality is they've very little to do. If there's no way of getting anywhere, they've very little to do in this community, and and, uh, and just when I was down at the park yesterday, I bumped into a couple of people, just really annoyed about, about some of the stuff that's been going on. Uh, it's caused a bit of tension among parents and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, just a throwaway comment down at the park yesterday is, is there nobody's going to do anything? <laughs> is nobody going to do anything? And I'm so grateful for the guys that have opened up in the youth club on a Wednesday night. And it feels like it's the first fruits of something. I'm believing, I'm praying, and I almost want to prophesy that it's the first fruits of something. But almost this throwaway comment of like, is there nobody's going to do nothing? Is there nobody going to open something up and, and create a place? Or are we just going to give off? Are we just going to keep, keep on speaking words of negativity and words of, of, uh, of, of lack of value, of lack of worth over these young boys and girls. And so that's what I, I just feel like I'm, I've been carrying that over the last few days. And, and I'd love as a church that we would begin to seek the Lord and, and, uh, and what we do, what we do with this. And this. These people I was talking to yesterday, they're not followers of Jesus. But they're asking the question, is anybody going to do something? And who is, the, who is, who is the one's best positioned? Who are the one's of anybody that should be doing anything, it should be us. And so I'd love that you would pray uh, about that as a, a family on mission over the next couple of weeks. If you are part of the WhatsApp group, you'll have known that I've, uh, I'd have asked you to, um, to read uh, some of the verses that we are going to look at this morning. If you haven't done that, please don't worry. We, uh, we will overview um, what, uh, what's going on in Acts chapter 16, right through to 17 verse 8. It's a, it's a chunky part, and I don't want to read it all. But let me just pray for, let me just pray for a moment, um, because Father, I really need you. 
the Holy Spirit, I'm so desperate for you to come and just anoint my lips. You would bring life, God, to what um, to what is going to be said. The Holy Spirit, I just pray that uh, we would sense you and know you as we've already done, but we pray that it would be, continue to be so as we open up your word and see what you want to say to us through it. And we honor your word and and we honor the story of uh, of the church being birthed and the kingdom advancing. And we thank you for the gift that that is to us. And we pray that we would hear it afresh today. And so Holy Spirit, we need you for that. So would you open our hearts wide today? Would you open our minds wide? Even our hands would just be open, God. Our hands would be open, just ready to receive and ready to give away what it is that you, uh, that you give to us. In Jesus' name. Let me fast forward to the, to the verse that I read a couple of weeks ago in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. <coughs> the, Paul and Silas have arrived in Thessalonica And it is said of them in verse 6, these men have caused trouble all over the world and they have now come here. Now if if you were to dive deep into this, into what's being said here, you will see in the original that what is being said about Paul and Silas is that they have and are overthrowing the existing order. What they're doing is coming and over everything that has been done, everything that was, all the traditions, all the rules, everything is being overthrown. The old ways are being overthrown. All of these religious rituals that were being held to really closely all of these things that have, had never been done before were now being done. These guys were overthrowing everything. They were turning the world upside down. Paul and Silas, these men have caused trouble all over the world and they've now come here. And so I just found myself this week going back, looking again at this verse and asking myself, what was it? What rumors were being spread? What had these guys heard in Thessalonica, for them to make such a statement. What had they heard? What stories had, what stories had, been, had been going around the region that caused these people to say, everything is being turned upside down. These guys are causing trouble everywhere they go. What had they heard? And that's why I want us to go back to Acts chapter 16. Because Acts chapter 16 is where the Paul and Silas had came from. They've arrived in Thessalonica, and I know in verse 17 it says that they had been, they were Amphipolis. Come on. I practiced this all night, now I can't even, I've forgot it. Amphipolis. No, not, not even close. Ah, had a perfect. That place in Apollonia, do you know what? It doesn't even matter because Paul and Silas just passed through there. Didn't even need to practice it. But Paul and Silas just passed through these places. So where had they been? 
Where had they been that they had caused such trouble? Where had they been that they had overthrown everything that had previously existed? And it was in Philippi. And we read about what happened in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. And so if you want to go there, let me, let's say, we don't have to read those first few verses, but let me read from verse six. Let me read these first four verses here. Paul and his companions, they travel through Galatia and having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia, when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And just by the way, like my geography is rubbish, but David did study geography just, just for his benefit. Where these guys were going, they were on their way north, coming up through modern day Syria, through where Madeline has been, up through Turkey. They came, they came up this way, up to the north, or came to this place called Mysia, and I think almost assuming that they would just follow the path on round, continuing to bring the gospel right around this part of, of Asia. But the spirit of Jesus, we're told, and this is a, this is a separate, separate conversation altogether, but the spirit of Jesus stops them and says, you're to go, well, through a dream, you're to go to Macedonia. It's literally the opposite way. So these guys are going this way, and the spirit of Jesus stops them. And in a vision, in a dream, somebody comes to Paul in a dream and says, please come and help us in Macedonia. And so Paul literally goes the opposite way literally goes the opposite way. And for the first time, the gospel arrives in Europe. The gospel arrives in Europe. And can I just make note of this too? David is ready. David mentioned this idea of the living portrayal of the gospel. In verse 10, we're told that that they concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And And I think what I want to say this morning is that I would almost encourage you to get the classical sense of preaching out of your minds. Because as you will see, as we will read on here, this is not the classical form of coming and preaching the gospel, presenting the, the Romans road or presenting the whatever, whatever methods we have of presenting the gospel. This is not a classical preaching the gospel. This is an embodied gospel. This is a living portrayal of the good news of Jesus being lived out. And we see it in what Paul and Silas achieve in Philippi. See, there's nowhere where we see that they went and preached in the classical sense. But what we do see is that them going and living among people. We, go, we watch them and we witness them bringing the gospel embodied, living it out among the people that they encountered in Philippi. And I think that's really important for us. Because the challenge for each one of us is all of us are preaching the gospel. I suppose how we live our lives, it's like, how, what does that, what is it looking like? How effective is that? And we want to be people, increasingly I'm realizing, we want to be people uh, just like, so just to use the example, to keep using the example of that Madeline has presented of, of Mandy and Josh in Turkey. 
Guys that have packed up everything and made their way to Turkey. And they're not just preaching the gospel. They are an embodiment of the gospel. They're living the gospel among people. They ha- their words, they're not just preaching the words, but their words have taken on flesh and are living among them. It's the example of Jesus. When Jesus came, he took on flesh and he dwelt among us. The, the message version says that he, that, he, that he came, took on our nature and moved into the neighborhood. That's what the preaching of the gospel really is. See, this is the easy part. This is the easy part to stand up here and, and, uh, and deliver a message as best as I possibly can. The, the, the harder part, the part, the harder part is whenever the rubber hits the road, when it has to become embodied, when it has to become lived out. And so whenever verse 10 says that God had called us to preach the gospel to them, I think it would be helpful for some of us that we get the classical sense out of our minds. Because I think we sometimes can almost abdicate our responsibility. Well, I'm not called to stand and preach the gospel. We're all called to embody it. We're all called to embody the, the gospel for the words to become flesh as we live among people. And so let's see the first place that they, the first place that they went in Europe. And, it's, and, it's a, and so what is famously known is Lydia being the first Christian convert in Europe. And that's who we want to read about in these, uh, really briefly in these few verses from, uh, from verse 11. So they put out to sea and they sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down uh, and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer of in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here is Lydia, the first known convert uh, in Europe. And I love the first place that these, that these guys gathered to was down by the river amongst a group of businesswomen, most likely. Down by the river, this, this businesswoman, Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, was down with, another, with a group of women. And Paul and Silas come and they, and they just embody the gospel. And in their conversations and in the telling of their stories, I believe, the Holy Spirit opens Lydia's heart to respond to what Paul is saying. And what I found really helpful over the last couple of days is, in my, maybe it's not in your versions, but in mine and in a couple of others that I've seen, we're told about Lydia that she is a worshiper of God. And what might be helpful for some of us to know is that there's two words used for a worshiper, two Greek words used for a worshiper in uh, the New Testament. Uh, and one of them is, so we read about, about Jesus being tempted in the desert. He's tempted in the desert and he says, I'm only going to serve the Lord. I'm going to worship him and him alone. And we read actually Jesus again in John chapter 4, 
in his encounter with the woman at the well, he says that the worshipers, the true worshipers that the Father seeks are those that will worship in spirit and in truth. And that word worship is, is and we've talked about it before, is to, is to lie prostrate, is to kneel, is to bow down. It's this idea of surrender, this idea of laying everything down in worship before, before the Father, before God. But this word is a different word. And actually, you'll read, you would read it again. Uh, if you've already read to chapter 17, you'll see that uh, verse 4 says that Paul and Silas um, had persuaded some of the Jews, uh, a large number of God-fearing Greeks. And it's the same word there. The same word uh, for worshiper in God-fearing as it is here to describe Lydia. So it's this idea of someone who is who, God-fearing, who is reverent. And, and I'm sure there's many of us in the room know people like that. They're those type of worshippers, people that, that, that believe in God, they acknowledge God, they have a certain respect and reverence for him, but they've never actually opened their heart to the radical gospel message. And for, and maybe it's, it would just be helpful to know that Lydia needed, still needed, even though it's just described here as a worshiper of God. She was God-fearing. She maybe showed up to the synagogue on a Sunday, but she never once opened her heart to receive the message of the Lord. And here for the first time, she does. And I'm convinced it's a really important moment. It's a really significant moment. That's why we're told about it, because I think... Not only does the gospel change lives, the gospel changes business. It, affect, it affects absolutely everything. And I think we're told about Lydia because, not, because Lydia's life was completely transformed from this moment. It had changed her life. And I believe that it changed her business because that's what the gospel does. For those of us that will open our hearts to the Lord, the gospel changes everything. And it changes lives, and I'm convinced that it changes business because it affects absolutely everything as we continue to see that that's what is going on in, in Philippi. So let's, let's go on. Let's see the next, the next story that we have of what happens in, in, this, in this city. Once again, they were going to the place of prayer. Verse 16. And we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Who knew that fortune tellers could tell the truth? But here it is, she's actually saying, she's calling these guys out for who they really are. Here is servants of the most high God who are here to tell you the way to be saved. And she kept doing this. This went on for days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. And when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews, and here we have this similar language, they are throwing our city into uproar. They're overthrowing everything. The status quo, we were happy with the status quo, keep things the way they are, 
keep people like this slave girl living the way she is, not bothering anybody, not, 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 not upsetting anybody. Let's just keep things the way they are. But then the, 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 what's spoken over them is that they're throwing our city into uproar. They're overthrowing the existing order by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in in the attack. And Paul and Silas, they were severely flogged and they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we've already heard about the, about the businesswoman. And now we, if, if you want to say, we've, we've somebody from the, the heights of society, we now go to the, to the depths of society. We read about this slave girl. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but I, really, I paused here for a time this week. Because sometimes we read through the stories of the Acts of the Apostles, as this, as this book is known. The Acts of the Apostles. And we become so focused with, the, with what has been done. We celebrate that, that, that what Paul and Silas were able to do. All that was achieved through them is they went and seen people, seen captives set free, seen people respond to the good news of Jesus. Stuff was, incredible things were happening. And often we miss the impact that it has on those who have been set free. Maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe it would be unfair for me to say it. But for me, I just was captured by this slave girl. I hate, I hate even calling her that. I'd love that we had her name. But I think, I think Paul, I think we're told here, finally Paul couldn't take it anymore. Because Paul knew that this was going to cost him. Paul knew by entering into this situation with this, with this young girl that, that there was going to be consequences. He knew that there was going to be a cost. But he cared too much about this girl. He cared too much about her and how she was being exploited. I think Paul knew that this girl had never known what it was like to be valued. She'd never known the worth of, of what it was just to be an image bearer of God. She'd never known it. She'd never experienced it. And Paul couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't handle that this young girl was just being used to make money for her owners. And the owners didn't care less. They didn't care less about her once she no longer had this power. They realized their hope of making money was gone. And Paul would have known was setting this young girl free. He would have known the consequences. But he cared too much. He cared too much about how she was being exploited. He knew what would happen if somebody finally placed true value and true worth on this young girl. And this is really important. Because the challenge for me in this moment, the challenge for me is that how often do we ignore things because we know it's going to cost something? And our situation, our situation here might not be the same as what was going on here with Paul and this slave girl. But how often do we ignore 
something because we know it's going to cost. And so I don't want to talk about, I don't want to talk about me and Judith, but as we've talked about, as we've considered an adoption and fostering and, and that, and that whole world, see, we're left with a choice. We can, we either ignore it or we acknowledge that we're going to get ourselves involved in this, knowing it's going to cost something and love that we're Bridget's bringing us to our house on the 18th of August. And so we got a letter. So let me just say this. And please never hear that there's anything coming from my lips that are putting you on a guilt trip. Please don't hear that. But we got a letter as foster carers and adoptive parents. We get, we get information through from the trust quite often. And it must, be, it must be getting more and more difficult for them to send a letter this week to say that the number of kids in care is continuing to increase and the number of carers to take care of these kids is not. And that's it in its paraphrased form. And so the challenge for the church, the challenge for the church is that either we ignore that, which we can do. That is the choice that we've got. Or we can get ourselves involved in the pain and the mess, knowing that it's going to cost something. And to try and pull this back, I could go off on a tangent about adoption and fostering, but that's not what I want to do. But it is true, isn't it? There, like, you know, like, I'm convinced that every one of you know now that there is things that we can ignore because we know what it's going to cost. We see homelessness on our streets. We see addictions. We see brokenness. We see family breakdown. And we can ignore it or... We can get involved with the understanding, like Paul did, that this is going to cost us something. And what it means, what it meant for Paul was that he was exchanging his freedom for this girl's. He was exchanging his freedom for hers. And that's what it could look like. That, that, the truth of that's what it could look like. You're not, I'm sure for many of us, it's not going to mean you're, you're going to end up in jail. But it could mean that the freedom that you have on a weekend, the freedom that you have in your evenings, you maybe no longer have because you've exchanged the freedom. I'm going back to adoption and fostering. I don't care. What do you say? Exchange the freedom of these boys and girls in exchange for your own. Oh, man. We ignore it or be like Paul and know that it's going to cost us something. And the cost for Paul in this occasion was that he was severely flogged. Uh, and again, I think it's one of those moments that we can read over this and not realize Paul and Silas would have been would have been beaten. I think if Lydia or anybody around Philippi had seen them a couple of days later, they would have been barely recognizable. What these Roman soldiers were capable of in a flogging was was beyond what we could what we could stomach, what we could look at. And these men were severely flogged. 
because of what they've done. And then we're told in their fastened feet in their stocks locked up in their prison cell they began to worship. They began to pray and sing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. And again, just a momentary, just a momentary thought. I was thinking this morning that I wonder was Paul thinking, again, you need to give me some license here, but I wonder was Paul thinking of this, this moment? What was Paul thinking of this young girl in Romans chapter 8 when he wrote Romans? And in chapter 8, it says that for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say, for I am convinced that there neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that mightn't be the case. But as I read Romans 8 last night, I thought, for your sake, is there anything that can separate us from the love of God? For your sake, we're, being, we're, we're, we're going to face death. We're going to put ourselves in the place of, of, uh, of it costing us everything because we know that there's nothing that can separate from the love that God has for us. And so for Paul and Silas, not their pain, not the mess that they had found themselves in, not their, nor their chains were able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You'd love to know what they were singing. You'd love to know the, the songs that were, that, were being, that were being declared throughout those prison cells. What was the prayers that they were praying that these other prisoners and this jailer could hear. And part of me struggles to imagine Paul and Silas being that great a singer, but maybe their voices were able to lull the jailer to sleep because the jailer fell asleep. And he was woke up with a real startle. He was woke up. Where are we? Let's go and read this. Sorry, verse 25. Midnight, Paul and Silas were praying singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once the prison doors were open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. And so in verse 23, the jailer had been given one instruction uh, to guard carefully. And the reason why he was about to take his own life was because he was, saving, uh, he was saving Caesar from doing it for him. He was saving Caesar the hassle because that was the, that was the consequence. That was the punishment for letting prisoners under your guard escape was that your life would be taken. And so he knew what was coming. He knew the consequences of letting these prisoners escape. And so as he's about to take his own life, Paul steps in and shouts, don't do it. Don't harm yourself. 
we are all here. And again, you've maybe seen this before, but for the first time this week, I've seen this word, we. We are all here. We are all here. (laughs) These prisoners that were in this jail with Paul and Silas, I'm not sure that they were there with the crime of setting a young girl free. I think there's probably all sorts of horrific things that they were in jail for. And the prison doors had blown open. Their their stocks have been released from their feet. Their chains are off. The doors are open. And yet Paul says, we are all here. I just love that. I love that as this guy is about to take his own life, Paul and Silas and everybody else is gathered around saying, don't do it. Don't do it. We haven't gone anywhere. We're all still here. And I love there, there was a, a preacher touched on this, this verse. And he says, what the jailer sees are two men who can set, set captives free but he also sees two men who can keep captives still. And so we don't have a lot more information about these prisoners, but they stayed. They stayed where they were. They were, they were set free, and the suggestion is that not only had they been set free, but they were kept still. Something had happened, and it caused, in this moment, it caused the jailer to ask, what must I do to be saved? And I'm still, and I'm asking myself that question, like what had he heard? Like the gospel has just made its way to Philippi. What was it that he'd heard? That there's immediate response to what's taken place. How did he know to ask that question? He just observed, you have to believe that he just observed what was going on. He'd heard the stories. And maybe some of the prayers that were prayed that night some of the songs that were sung as these guys lay in such pain, such agony you'd imagine, face, body, severely beaten, worshiping, praying, singing praises to God. It was in what he had observed. It is in the stories that he heard the songs that he had sung in a place that they should, at a time that they should not be sung, that his immediate response was, what must I do to be saved? And so he hadn't heard the classical preaching of the gospel, but he'd seen it lived out. He'd heard the stories of how it was being embodied in his city. And it caused him to say, what must I do to be saved? And I, my goodness, how I would love that. How I would love prominent people in our communities to, to be able to come even, maybe they haven't even heard the gospel, but they've observed and they've heard the stories and they've heard us continuing to worship, even though we're living in a time of real confusion, in a time of real frustration, in a time we don't know what's going on or how on earth some people have made their way to power and we are wondering what is going on. But we continue to sing. We continue to pray. We continue to, to, to show up. We continue to say yes. And I love Paul's presentation. 
Paul's presentation of the gospel. What must I do to, make, to be saved? Paul, preach the gospel to me. And in one line, Paul gives it to him. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. So here was, here was two guys. Here was two guys. The accusation of, the, of theirs was that they were causing trouble everywhere they went. They were shifting everything on its head. Everything was, everything looked different. They were valuing and honoring and raising up the lowest of the low. They were living their faith. The, the idea of cautious, comfortable, casual Christianity, I don't think is even in their vocabulary. And so I'm still at the place where I'm inviting you and asking you to repent of casual, comfortable, cautious Christianity. And that we would be inspired by these stories where we see people living radical counter, counter cultural ways that leave no part of society untouched. Whether it's the rich, the business people, whether it's the slave girl, or whether it's the jailer and the, or the prisoners, from the top to the bottom to the highest to the lowest, everything is turned on its head. And in the city of Philippi, nothing is left untouched. Nothing is as it was before. And it's from there, it's from there that Paul and Silas make their way to Thessalonica. And these Jews, they were jealous, they were confused, they couldn't understand it. And they went and said, no, can't do it here. Dragged them out of Jason's house. Dragged Jason and his companions out of his house, wanted to know where these men were that were turning everything upside down because they wanted to get rid of them. They wanted to get them out. Because they're trying to say that there's only one king and he's called Jesus. And so I'm done. And I'm not, as I, as I finish, I'm not saying to us, I feel like I'm saying to myself that we would no longer just study these men and women who turned the world upside down, but that we would become one of them we would become one of them. We'd live radical, counter-cultural ways that leave no part of society untouched. From the top to the bottom, the highest to the low, nothing as it was before. Overthrowing the existing order. Overthrowing the status quo. It's what our world desperately needs and it's what he has entrusted us to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you would inspire us by these stories. And God, as we look upon them and as we would read them, there wouldn't be things that we read over to fulfill a devotional. There wouldn't be things that we say wasn't it amazing back then. We not only would read of stories of this happening, but we would become people 
that begin to live in such a way that anything is possible. So thank you, Father. Thank you for how you see us. Thank you for the value and the worth that you place upon each one of us. Jesus, thank you that we get to partner with you in seeing your kingdom come. The Holy Spirit, thank you that you live within us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. So I pray that it would be activated among your people for your glory, for your fame. We acknowledge today that there is only one king. There is only one king and his name is Jesus. And we pray that your rule and your reign would be established in every part of society. No part would be left untouched by the advancing of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.